Welcome to this edition of Labor Vision. I'm Bob Delaney, Executive Director of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. Labor Vision, a production of the Institute, focuses on topics of importance to working Rhode Islanders. We hope you enjoy this edition. Vision, a production of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. I'm your host, Erica Hammond, and joined with me today are the president of the Rhode Island Federation of Teachers and Health Professionals, Frank Flynn, and the president of the National Education Association, Rhode Island, Larry Pirtle. Thank you so much for joining us, no, both of you. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. All right. Why don't we start with you, Frank? Uh, let's. Can you tell us a little bit about your union and the members you represent? Sure. The Rhode Island Federation of Teachers and Health Professionals is an affiliation of the American Federation of Teachers. Um, we have 24 locals throughout Rhode Island uh, and one uh, very active retiree group. Uh, our locals represent primarily K-12 teachers and school support staff. We also represent to higher education. We have the Rhode Island College faculty, mm -hmm. the professional staff, and the adjunct union there. We represent the uh, faculty at Bryant University. We have some public sector employees at uh, Rhode Island Department of Ed, and in the court system, the court stenographers are represented by us. In addition, we have some private sector. We have the Rhode Island Student Assistance Counselors as well as we represent the d direct service uh, providers from the Trudeau Center. Okay. And, uh, and, and uh, last but not least, we have uh, three locals of uh, visiting nurses uh, that work in different places in Rhode Island. Awesome. Thank you. And Larry, I know we just had Stephanie Mandeville on, uh, but for our viewers who missed that segment, can you talk a little bit about uh, NEARI and the members you represent? Sure. We have about 12,000 members, and like Frank, uh, K-12, uh, teachers, support professionals. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have higher ed, state employees, and some municipal employees. Uh, we have a retired group as well. Um, and this is a big year for us. This is uh, NEA Rhode Island's 175th wow. uh, year. So wow. uh, we're planning some events to uh, highlight our history, but also to highlight what mm -hmm. our members and our members do uh, every day. All right, awesome. And now, Frank, do you want to talk about some of the um, RIFTHP's uh, legislative core legislative issues that they'll be focusing on this year? Sure. Um, well, you know, most importantly, uh, we'll be working very closely to analyze the governor's budget proposal mm -hmm. and how it impacts uh, the, the employees that we represent. Um, certainly K-12 funding is, is very important to us, uh, making sure that there's additional money uh, to support the schools, uh, and particularly uh, the programs that they're trying to introduce. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we, we have a shortage of multi-language learning teachers, making mm -hmm. sure there's enough money uh, to support that population, um, additional money for uh, special education tuition, uh, out-of-district tuition. Um, in, Kate, in the budget, uh, more money for the DD community, yeah. uh, which we advocate for every year. Um, other things like uh, not necessarily for our members, but making sure the minimum wage uh, it gets raised so that, you know, our, the students that we represent, their families uh, can afford housing and afford all the other things that are necessary in this day and age. Right. And I, you mentioned the DD um, population support. Can you talk a little bit about the direct service provider legislation? I know that this work will continue, right? 
from last year? Yes, Can um, it, it, there was an increase last year of 91 cents. Um, this is a very tight budget year. Uh, there's projected to be uh, somewhere between 180 and 200 million dollar shortfall, so they're gonna have to look at alternative uh, uh, revenue sources as well as you know making some cuts in other mm -hmm. areas um, so uh, th that's a it's a primary focus of ours we've been working with Senator De Palma for the last okay. several years and Representative Shanley from Warwick um, to make sure that this population that work with our most vulnerable mm -hmm. uh, clients and citizens um, are able to hire people and retain people uh, to do that important work and it's it's very difficult work and oftentimes the people aren't paid commensurate with the responsibilities right. they have. Absolutely. And you said that some of those members that you represent are from at the Trudeau Center? The Trudeau Center are our own place, right. yes. I used to volunteer at the Trudeau oh. Center, so I have a lot of good friends still there. Um, all right, Larry, and do you want to talk to us a little bit about um, Neary's focus on mental health in schools? Sure, um, and it's a huge focus for us and yeah. our primary focus uh, going forward along with, as Frank talked about, the budget. Um, a couple years ago, uh, in discussions with the governor, we were talking about school safety, and we set up some meetings around the state, five of them, uh, with our members to talk about school safety, and every one of those meetings within five minutes turned to mental health issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we need more mental health providers, uh, we need more resources. The governor talked about in their state of the state the other night about providing that. Uh, it's important for, for a variety of reasons, obviously, but it also affects uh, school climate, school discipline, and uh, mental health cuts across all age groups, all income categories, but when you combine mental health with poverty, uh, it gets even worse. So our focus is um, reaching out and making sure that the services are provided uh, so the kids can be successful. Uh, that and pre-K, I think, are the two things things we can do right now to really help public education and help students. And what does that look like in schools? Is it adding more mental health in individuals in the schools or? Uh, and that's, that's one because often when a student has an issue, uh, there's no one available to deal right. with that issue immediately. So, uh, and I think we need to be creative too and think outside the box and uh, have counselors available over the, on the weekends and for mm -hmm. families, uh, not just during the school day. And uh, part of that is, again, uh, we, uh, people can't always afford those type of services. So right. uh, it's incumbent upon us to make sure those are available mm -hmm. for both students and families. And what is that? What is the impact that that would have on not only your members but also the students in the schools? So, well, I think when you're suffering from trauma or are you suffering from some type of uh, mental illness, uh, it's very hard to concentrate yeah. um, in school. And who care, cares about you know history when you're suffering trauma at home? Right. So those issues have to be addressed, and they not only affect that individual student, but they carry over into the classroom, can be discipline issues, mm -hmm. uh, so it affects everybody. So it's, uh, right. it's important that we address it. Mm -hmm. And how are you, um, what are some ways that you guys are addressing it? Are well, more, you know, more professional development, yeah. lobbying for more money for more, more professionals, mm -hmm. uh, trying to make people aware of the issues. I think a lot of people aren't aware of uh, the severity of it right. in the schools today. Um, and so making people aware so that they'll be supportive of more funds and, mm -hmm. and helping out. Yeah, and uh, just to follow up, we, we have an opioid <coughs> crisis uh, in Rhode Island mm -hmm. uh, throughout the nation. And that certainly impacts those students whose families are dealing with that. And it's virtually every family uh, in the state, uh, you know, is, is 
is in some way impacted by that. We represent uh, substance abuse counselors uh, that work in the schools, they're embedded in the schools. Um, they provide a, a, a great service to the students. Um, unfortunately, it's not funded at the level it needs to be to, to mm -hmm. get it into every school in the state. So we're hoping that um, in this governor's budget, with that money or some other federal monies, we'll be able to expand that program because that's certainly uh, uh, you know, a mental health issue that's uh, really becoming mm -hmm. uh, a focus of, of government in, in the school system. It's a crisis. It right? is a crisis. Right. Frank talked about, and Frank talked about raising the minimum wage too. That's, that's important because if you're living in poverty and mm -hmm. you're working two or three or four jobs to support your family and these other issues arise, you may not be able to address them. Right. Uh, so sometimes when you think about schools, what's going on, we think about, you know, what's going on in the school building and classes and curriculum, but all these other issues have a huge impact as Can't well. separate the two, right? And I know in a lot of cases too, it's not just the parent or the guardian who is working those multiple jobs, it may be the child as well or the student as well, mm -hmm. right? We have a lot of grandparents now raising yes. children, oh, uh, right. which is really a, a critical situation. And would either of you like to talk about any more, a few other legislative um, pieces, like core legislative pieces that you guys will be focusing on this year? Well, I think um, professional development, uh, mm -hmm. funding for professional development, um, back in the uh, late 2008-2009, we had a dedicated stream of money that mm -hmm. went to the district to provide professional development for okay. teachers uh, and school staff. That was over, it was over $4 million. Um, that was called Article 31 at the time, and then it became Article 18. That money was eliminated when we had the recession in 2010. So we have great needs in, in professional development for teachers, and districts are on very tight budgets already, so they don't have the money. And it's going to be critical this year as they adopt new curriculums throughout mm -hmm. the state for, for all of the school districts and for things like mindfulness and uh, you know, culturally, culturally responsive pedagogy, uh, wellness, uh, mm -hmm. mental health advocacy, all of those areas and, and many, many more need professional development yeah. for teachers and we gotta make sure that we are able to provide it and that we have the resources to do that, either internally or by bringing in the appropriate professionals. And the, and the best type of professional development is uh, from the ground up instead of top mm -hmm. down. It's what teachers need to be successful in mm -hmm. their classroom. And as Frank just talked about, there are so many issues out there in professional development, meaningful, well thought out professional mm -hmm. development. Uh, but I also, we need the resources and the funding to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, do either of you have an idea of what this professional development will look like, or is that still in, in the works? Um, there's a lot of discussion about it um, because now it's going to be something that's mandated throughout the state to provide. Um, there are a lot of different ways to look at it. I've believed for many years that when Larry and I were on a, the Certification Policy Advisory Board together, for many years, he was smart enough to get off of it. I'm still on it. Um, <laughs> but um, that being said, uh, I think there needs to be a statewide clearinghouse of professional development for mm -hmm. teachers that you know either run by the state or by Rhode Island Department of Ed that you know can provide these and, and organize these so that we don't have the duplication and they vet uh, mm -hmm. what is good professional development because you don't want to. We're all struggling with resources. We want to make sure that you know we don't provide professional development that isn't of a, a high quality that we right. need and that we don't have duplication in our spending, our resources in, in this, doing the same thing in multiple places where mm -hmm. it could be combined and be much more Absolutely. cost efficient. And Frank and EFT have done a good job for years uh, with professional development. We've been offering a lot of it and it's uh, tonight in our office we're doing some professional development. It's very well attended, mm -hmm. but it's again, what, 
we ask, what do you need? And then when they tell us, then we can meet those needs. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the way to do it. Again, what the teachers need um, to be successful. Absolutely. And I think having those meetings is critical because they need to be. They need to tell you exactly what they. No one knows better, right? Than exactly those in the classroom, right there. And in the example of the mental health, with, with those meetings from a couple of years ago, again, it turned to mental health right away because yeah. that's what every teacher, every support professional, uh, the custodians we had in the meetings, everyone said that was the key issue wow. that needed to be addressed. Now, um, are there a f any other any situation? Any? I'm sorry events or things to look out for that people can get involved with. Um, I'm sure your members are well aware of these, the meetings that happen and that they can take part in, but any more supports that people can be involved with? Well, we, we urge our, local, our locals and our members uh, through their locals to get involved in the budget processes in their local cities and towns mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that you know, we have enough uh, funds, that we fund our schools appropriately. Right. Um, the way this, the funding generally works, uh, there's state funding and then there's local funding and oftentimes um, the schools in the local districts are at the end of the food chain, so to speak, because uh, you know, they're not prioritized because the state does you know, generally gives additional money, but it, that's still not enough in many of our districts. So mm -hmm. we need to get member engaged, members engaged to become activists to make sure that we fund our schools adequately. Absolutely. Yeah, and you mentioned having Stephanie on last week. She does a terrific job of getting out yeah. what we're doing and our, our web page and everything to keep members informed. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, we're looking forward to our 175th and doing some activities to uh, yeah. get our members involved even more. Are you celebrating that on a specific, is it a specific day no, this we're year gonna, or is that this uh, whole year? We're going to kick it off probably uh, in the next couple of months, but it'll awesome. be a, kind of a year-long thing. Right. Highlight and ending yeah. with, uh, well, we certainly highlight uh, Education Week and uh, National Teacher Day, and also National mm -hmm. ESP Day in November. So okay. those will be some of the highlights. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to getting more information on that, and I'm definitely going to follow up on some of this legislation. And it'd be great to have you both in throughout the legislative year, so we can sure. hear more about how it's going yeah, and how people great. can get involved. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. All right. For those of you tuning in, you're watching Labor Vision. Uh, for anyone who's just tuning in and missed any of this episode, you can check out the entire episode on our new website. It's www.laborvisionri.org. Or you can check out our YouTube channel. It's YouTube. It's, I'm sorry, Labor Vision TV One. Uh, thank you so much for joining. We hope you have a great night. Welcome to Labor Vision, a production of the Institute for Labor Studies and Research. I am your host, Erica Hammond, and joined with me today from AFSME, Rhode Island Council 94, is Jim Centerini. Thank you so much for joining us, Jim. Thank you so much for having me here today. All right. I know we have a lot on the schedule, so let's dive right into uh, what your organization is working on this year's legislative session. So we'll start with the budget. Sure. Um, do you, would you like to explain some of Council 94's position on the um, administration's budget recommendations? Sure. Um, so just to back up and introduce myself, because it's mm -hmm. been, I think, close to 10 years since I've been on the show. Uh, my name is Jim Cinerini. I work for Rhode Island Council 94, the American Federation of State Communist mm -hmm. Employees. 
and I work as the Legislative Affairs and Political Action Coordinator, okay. and also as a Senior Staff Representative. So um, originally when I started working with Council 94 in 2002, I was primarily focused on legislation, research, communications work. Mm -hmm. um, now my role has evolved where it's a little bit different, where um, I still do the lobbying and political work, mm -hmm. um, but I also uh, represent uh, a large number of active employees in contract negotiations and contract enforcement. So today okay. we're here to talk about one of my first loves, uh, which is government and the legislative yeah. process. Um, so you too, if you desire to go to school for political science, uh, there may be employment options in your future. All right. Uh, contrary to what a lot of people will tell you. <laughs> so the first thing um, I would tell you is that one of the largest priorities for um, uh, our union in every legislative session mm -hmm. uh, is, is to analyze the state budget. Okay. Um, we represent uh, over 8,000 active employees, um, roughly dividing 50%. 4,000 of those work for state agencies in just about every single state agency for the state of Rhode Island. And then we represent another 4,000 members who work in just about every uh, municipality and city and town in the state of Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And so we also additionally represent private sector workers uh, who are somewhat reliant on the state budget because many of those private sector workers work as bus drivers right. or in the school lunch program. So for examples of the types of jobs that our members do, uh, we represent everything from the scale of um, janitors, custodians, uh, housekeepers, cooks, helpers, uh, all the way through to uh, uh, wetland biologists, uh, clinical lab scientists, and um, it ranges really over the map. Just about any kind of job, eligibility technicians, any kind of job that you can imagine um, being out there, uh, it falls within the range of Council wow. 94 to represent in our contracts. Um, as such, the state budget is the most important document that generally goes through the legislature every year because while it is the state budget there's also other types of funding that cities towns other private entities are relying upon um, so when the state budget comes out um, that bill it's in a form of a bill is generally 300 to 400 pages uh, and we have to go through that bill line by line to see what impacts may be. Mm -hmm. um, but anyone who tells you that they really understand the state budget just by reading the legislation, I would be careful about believing them um, because any lobbyist worth their weight and salt is going to tell you that after the state budget comes out, we dive first into the series of budget books that come out from the administration, mm -hmm. um, being the executive summary, uh, and all of the different agencies have basically are compiled into a series of books. So we have mm -hmm. to then examine the executive summary to figure out what is actually in the budget and what the governor's intentions are. But even from those documents, it's not always entirely clear about what the impacts or the ramifications are on mm -hmm. critical state services, whether it's the food stamp program or whether it's uh, SNAP benefits or whether it's um, your cash assistance benefits or whether it's environmental protection done by DEM. It's not always clear just from those documents what mm -hmm. the implications of the changes are. So then uh, all lobbyists generally wait uh, to dive in and review all of the fiscal analysis done by the House Finance Committee and the Senate Finance Committee. And then by going through all of those sources and it 
can easily be over uh, a thousand to two thousand pages worth of information. Oh. Um, we then piece together what the potential impacts are of the budget. Okay. Um, so to give you an example, last year concretely, uh, there was an efficiency commission that was launched in the administration and we actually identified um, two really bad ideas uh, that Council 94 had been successful uh, in stopping. And the first was uh, the privatization of the laboratory at the Eleanor Slater Hospital. Mm -hmm. um, this lab originally had been uh, threatened with being outsourced uh, at least uh, two or three years ago. Um, and that lab provides medical testing for some of the most uh, vulnerable uh, clientele at the state hospital, whether um, they are on ventilator beds, whether they have acute psychiatric diagnoses, or um, really long-term acute care needs that can't mm -hmm. be handled in private nursing homes. So originally it started as a fight between agencies, but the administration had tried to outsource that lab. Ironically enough, the year that that had been introduced, they had received a 100% floorless accreditation score um, from the Joint Commission, which certifies the lab in the hospital. Um, the members got really active and we were successful in beating that back. Um, last year in the Efficiency Commission, that proposal came back again um, and we were very grateful uh, that the uh, members mobilized and the House and Senate Finance Committees, after a lot of testimony agreed with us, um, actually uh, rejected mm -hmm. the efforts to outsource that work yet again. Um, and actually, uh, for many years, that lab had provided free uh, medical testing for DOC. They went a step further and ordered the Department of Corrections uh, to bring lab work that they had outsourced back to the lab that has always done that at Eleanor Slater Hospital for free. Okay. Um, so now we're in the process of trying to make sure, number one, uh, that those lab services, which are done at an excellent level of quality of care and great mm -hmm. value to the taxpayer, are still done at Eleanor Slater Hospital, and now we're watching to make sure that that work is insourced. Okay. Um, the second example would be last year, they had um, proposed to shift um, all of the audio testing that's done in all of the elementary uh, schools throughout the state mm -hmm. by the School for the Deaf, which are done by our audio test technicians at the Department of Education and the School for the Deaf. They wanted to shift the cost of that to the local school districts. It, it made no sense. Right. It's an extremely effective program does over 50,000 tests a year. Mm -hmm. Again, we spent a lot of time working with our members, mobilizing them and going to House and Senate Finance uh, Committee meetings. Uh, and we were very grateful uh, that the General Assembly uh, kept that program intact. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it was a very uh, good campaign because all of the school districts and the unions were all on the same side. Uh, and um, it was another example of identifying a bad budget choice mm -hmm. um, and, and, and stopping it before it was implemented. Okay. And are there any other budget items that you'll be looking at for this year? Or? We have several different threats. Um, we're very concerned about the integrity of the training school. Mm -hmm. um, the training school is somewhere where um, Generally, individuals who commit very violent crimes, mm -hmm. even though uh, they are juveniles, 
are sent for rehabilitation. The state has made some, we believe, regrettable cho programming choices where they're now um, letting youth out with less than 50% mm -hmm. time served. Um, the, 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 the population and residency of the training school has gone lower and lower. Mm -hmm. um, we have a, a concern about the state trying to downsize it again, and we're watching for that um, right. uh, very critically. And um, moving, moving on to some legislative, um, some more legislative stuff, the reinstatement of licensure for clinical laboratory uh, science practitioners. Can you talk a little bit about this work, um, what a clinical laboratory science practitioner is? Sure, for the clinical lab scientists, clinical lab scientists are uh, those people that at hospitals, whenever you go in, uh, will run all of your blood uh, lab results. Okay. Um, it's very important work. And many years ago, uh, actually, um, there had been a misdiagnosis because lab work wasn't uh, done properly in the Newport area. So from that, they created a very detailed licensure requirement. Um, the administration proposed, supposedly, to try to make the state more business friendly. They eliminated all of the licensure. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have to give credit to the United Nurses and Allied Professionals. Uh, Senator Ewer and Representative Carson. Uh, they assembled a great coalition last year. We all worked together very hard, and we actually, for the first time ever, the original action to eliminate licensure was in 2015. All of us had opposed it, but we all worked hard last year, and that legislation finally advanced um, at least through one chamber in the Senate, okay. and we're going to be going back again uh, to do that this year. So that's the impact this has on not only your members but also all of Rhode Islanders is it's very obvious. It's a great example of unions working. We don't have a tremendous amount of members, mm -hmm. like it's not a couple of hundred, it, right. it, but it is something that is uh, certainly good public policy that benefits the public health of Absolutely. not just union members but all me all right. the citizens of Rhode Island. So we're going to keep driving that forward. All right. And lastly, do you want to go into a little bit of the legislative work you are doing on, around public safety? Sure. On public safety, um, one of the great problems with the 2011 pension reform, or pension changes as we call them, was that uh, Council 94 represents a couple of hundred public safety um, professionals, mm -hmm. um, including Capitol Police, deputy sheriffs, uh, armed university police, campus police. And one thing that, um, an environmental police, and one thing that occurred uh, is that during the pension changes, um, better eligibility ages were granted right. to municipal police and municipal firefighters uh, because of the dangerous nature of their job mm -hmm. uh, and that it's not a wise idea for them to work to age 67 in those jobs. Unfortunately, despite our many arguments about the way that the pension changes mm -hmm. were done, one thing that certainly was ignored was that we felt that our public safety uh, members should receive the same treatment as municipal police and fire. And we have no problems that we're not saying that anything should be taken away from municipal police and fire, but what we have most recently argued is that our public safety officers, many who are fully trained, fully sworn, full arrest powers mm -hmm. should have the same type of pension eligibility requirements. It just defies logic that our members who do have high injury rates, do have very dangerous jobs, do have full arrest powers. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if for our airport crash rescue, they actually have higher physical agility requirements on an annual basis with testing, uh, now are required to work to age 67 
age 67 mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and perform these similarly demanding, physically demanding jobs. It makes no okay. sense. We plan to approach this issue again at the bare minimum. We hope we can get an actuarial study to get an idea of the cost of the changes. Okay. And before we wrap up, do you want to add anything? Sure. Um, I mean, there's one issue that I know um, that's come to the attention of President Mike Downey uh, is that we have received a lot of complaints about some of the secrecy that still resolves around um, investments made uh, by venture capital funds. Mm -hmm. And so it's an extremely risky vehicle that has been used. Um, we have urged consistently that there needs to be more transparency. Um, there's been recent uh, news media coverage by Ted Sedell um, concerning certain investments that have these strange provisions that allow the venture fund to choose to hold on to potentially state pension investment money for as long as they want um, and do it in a secret manner where the votes aren't secret, the voting members are secret, um, the fee structure is secret. We find that to be highly troublesome. Mm -hmm. So we have not developed a specific legislative proposal as of yet, but okay. we're going to be dedicating some time and energy to that issue. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, your explanation on each of these legislative pieces is super helpful to myself and I'm sure plenty of our viewers as well. Thank uh, you so much. So I'm looking forward to tracking this legislation and seeing how it goes this year. Appreciate it. Thank looking you. forward to seeing you at State House. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jim. For those of you tuning in, you're watching Labor Vision, make sure to check out our new website. It's www.laborvisionri.org. And we hope to see you back here next week. Thanks for watching. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Labor Vision. We appreciate your input and encourage your comments. Labor Vision can be seen on this channel three times each week, Tuesday at 7 p.m., Thursday at 8 p.m., and Saturday at 5 p.m.